everybody loves Wednesday, especially when it's 90 degrees outside with a 100 degree heat index. But we're not complaining, we're just stating the facts. So this is Rob Foster. This is episode number 122 of Shut Up and Grind with me. So if you're new to this show, please like like the, um, I almost said channel. We're not on the channel. So like the show, share the show. Uh, head over to the YouTube channel, like and share over there as well, because we help you overcome those things that are holding you back in life, but we also help you take those things and find out what your passion and life should actually be. But first, I have a question. Why should you listen to me? Here is my answer. I started doing workshops and doing groups where I'm getting up in front of of others, like outside of the gym setting and talking about resilience and perseverance and goal setting and vision and taking action. You should know what one hour of your time is worth. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. starts with clarity of vision. If you don't have the clarity of vision, whatever next thing you get, you're not going to see it through because you don't have the clarity of vision. So the, the point of my pain was being told you will never run or jump again. And all that stuff, I was like, you know what? Like, I want to be able to take this even bigger. If you know why you do what you do, you have to know how to charge for what you do. That's how you're going to change your life, and that's how you're going to leave a legacy for your children and your family. you got to know your work. All right, so that's just a little snapshot into my background, but when it comes to overcoming obstacles, I've done it. All just from failures in high school to athletic failures to a crushed Olympic dreams to a devastating knee injury where I was told I'd never want to jump again to donating a kidney to my sister to being told a college dropout will never succeed in business having to move my 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 gym several times to have in business partners trying to sue me like the stories are endless but you know what I'm still here I'm still right here and so I find guests from all over the world who share their struggles, they share their backstories so they can help inspire you to get through whatever it is you might be going through. And you might ask yourself, why does he always wear, wear a tank top? A, it's hot and I sweat. B, I like to show up my muscles, I work hard for these. And C, my ability to inspire you has absolutely nothing to do with the clothing on my back. All right, so now that that's out of the way, let's talk about today's topic. It's about finding your passion, or more importantly, when your job becomes your passion because let's face it everybody works for money everybody does i love when people say oh i just love this job i'm so passionate about it would you do it for free and then the faces change you know so like when you actually have something that you would do for free that is something that you're truly passionate about no i'm not saying do it for free because you're valuable your time is valuable your experience is valuable. Your effort and your dedication is all valuable. So you definitely want to get paid for what you do. But would you do it for free? That is the question. Because when I speak, I will speak for, for free. Like local, those local schools here in Rhode Island, I will never charge a, charge any one of these local schools for me to come in and speak at their events or into their classrooms. Never, never, never. 
Rival, rival, not rival, but neighboring states, absolutely. I will charge them. But local, no. Like, this is where I'm from. I'm homegrown. I will gladly, gladly give back because I'm passionate about what I do, about helping people find the hidden gems that are already inside of them. And we're going to pull them out. Just like my guest who was working in a certain field, which she'll get into to all of that. But throughout that process, it became something bigger than her just earning a paycheck. And I'm going to bring her on now so we can get her story. So help me welcome to the show, Dr. Karen. And I asked her how to pronounce her last name this time. Gedney, bring her in. Welcome to the show, Karen. Well, Rob, it's great to be here. And I love your energy. And I love the fact that you're an athlete, because that is something that I've always been all my life, even in my old age. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we have to address the elephant in the room before, before we get started. What is it like watching your name get vilified? Vilified? <laughs> yes. Like the name Karen is like an insult now. Oh, God. Yeah, here, here I was blanking on, on that, but you're absolutely oh. right. And, uh, and it's interesting to me that they uh, really honed in on Karen. But yeah. because I'm an analytical thinker instead of an emotional thinker, yeah. it's because Karen was a very common uh, name, especially in the 50s and 60s in women. And now those women are older and let's say set in their ways. They're in their 50s and 60s. And just by sheer number, you're going to have some bad apples. And if you have a large number and a few bad apples, it's statistically, you're going to have the name that comes up the most often. So it's sort of funny. I uh, And I look at myself in my life like I am the epitome of something entirely different than those women. And uh, to me, it's amusing, not annoying. But that's the way I've uh, survived my life is not to take things personally at all, ever. <laughs> that's, that's an amazing answer. <laughs> I'm actually glad I asked. Like, I was on the fence if I was going to ask you or not, but then the boldness of me was like, just ask. <laughs> so that was a great answer. All right, so where, where are you from? I grew up in upstate New York in the Catskill okay. Mountains, nice. about as secluded uh, a childhood as you could imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been up that way. It's like It's like 50 miles in between exits up there. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Though. I love the mountains around here. I love going up to New Hampshire and Vermont. I, I just love the mountains. My happy place. Yeah. And uh, one of the things my father was really into, because uh, he had always wanted to do it when he was a kid, was to ski. So at one years old, I was put on skis and I wow. was a hardcore skier. And if anybody knows that area in the Catskills, Hunter Mountain, Uh, was a sort of famous ski area. And believe it or not, uh, way back in the 50s, it was bought by uh, the Fondas, Oscar Hammerstein, things like that. So my father, who had really no money whatsoever, but this was his thing, he uh, got the family what was called a lifetime membership. So for $75, $75 in the 50s, I got a lifetime of skiing at the mountain. Now, my lifetime membership was signed by Oscar Hammerstein. You see what I mean? It's wild. 
But awesome. when they sold the mountain to the Slutsky brothers back in the 60s, fortunately, those construction brothers honored those lifetime passes. So I skied my entire childhood until I was 18 all the time, all the time skiing. And I was a hardcore skier. Nice. I love it. $75 now won't even get you an intro. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I think of the days I skied, for 75 bucks from the age of one to 18. That's, that's amazing. That's a hell of a deal. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about you. So who, who is Karen? If you were to meet, to meet some people as you are right now, you, you're meeting my, myself and my audience. Like, how would you describe yourself? Ooh, I am someone who started out as an introvert and had to break out of my own little prison. And I was taught that lesson by being thrown into a prison by the federal government to be a prison doctor. Okay. And that experience really changed me and introduced me to a calling I would have never expected. And that was um, really prison reform and fighting against racial and social injustice issues. Okay, solid answer. All right, so describe describe you being an, an introvert. Well, when I grew up, um, you'd have to actually look at my family. My mother was German, um, grew up in Hitler's time. Believe it or not, she was in the Hitler Youth Organization. Like okay. most children were put in, uh, when they were growing up. And her family, she was one of nine, a middle child. Um, when the Second World War broke out, uh, the Nazis grabbed her older brother and dragged him into the Luftwaffe. And uh, her father was thrown into the Western Front. They never found him again. Wow. And the Russians, when the Russians came in, uh, the mother and uh, eight little kids ran and basically starved, froze, ended up in a Russian prisoner of war camp. Then after the war, that area of Germany was given to Poland. Then they were refugees. Mm -hmm. And my mother spent all her formative years with that type of trauma. And um, she ultimately was getting tired of living in Red Cross barracks when she was a teenager. And uh, she was the first one of the kids who became a Dienstamation, which means a slave, okay. where they farm you out. She was farmed out to Scotland to be a farmhand. Then uh, she ended up in England as a maid. And just because of luck, uh, got someone to sign visa papers for her. So she be got to the United States in the 50s. And then uh, she met my father, who was also a child of immigrants, and neither one had ever completed high school. And both were traumatized by war. And then I was born. Then my sister was born. And here we are in the Catskill Mountains. And my mother had an unusual resilience in one way, but unbelievable fears in another way. <laughs> so, you know, looking back at it, it could be a psychology experiment for me because mm -hmm. imagine we're like off by ourselves. I mean, really off by ourselves. And if anyone even near came to the house, my mother would have us hide. Yeah. All right. Okay. I mean that, and 
we were never allowed to speak to strangers, let alone look at them. Um, when we went to school, because we were sort of on the poor end, uh, my mother made our little, you know, clothes. So you'd imagine I'm in homemade clothes with two long blonde braids. I could have had a goat and I would have been like Heidi. You see what I mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then when I grew up with these German parents, um, they mixed and matched English. So sometimes my English doesn't come out semantically correct because there were words that I thought were English words that were German words. You see what I mean? So then you get teased in school because you have a whole different construction of your language system. Yes. But, and I was highly, highly nearsighted and they didn't know that. And because my parents don't like weakness, you know, uh, I hid that for years that I actually couldn't see probably six inches in front of me. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and so that really allowed me or maybe pushed me where one of the things I could see were books. So I loved, I was a, I was a person who just consumed books and lived in books because my vision was so bad and they really didn't catch me. And in school, you know, where they test you, I would just memorize what the kids said in front of me because I couldn't even see the wall. Wow. And those weird things make you or, or put me on the path of being an introvert and a loner, a loner. Okay. okay. So when you say that your parents didn't like weakness, do you think that stems from the PTSD of the war trauma? Absolutely. Because if you were weak, you weren't going to make it. Yeah. Uh, and and also there's this German sort of cultural thing about uh, being tough, you know, uh, and also not being emotional. Uh, just if things get tough, you just get tougher. This is an example. I mean, just thinking about this the way <laughs> what you're interested in my background <laughs> was the uh, you know, we're lived in the country, right? So I'm about six, my sister's five. We still talk about this. And I was really into climbing. I'm climbing up the tree, really tall. I sit on a branch, I fall through the tree, go splat and knock myself unconscious. Oh, wow. All right. My sister did not go home and, and tell my mother. She just sat there and poked me with a stick until I finally came to. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> all right. All right. And we never told our mother. So then yeah. I've got to hide all the scratches on my body. You see what I mean from going yes. through the tree. Yes. But, but this is how we grew up because my mother so overreacted to if you were late a minute, that meant you could have been dead. Right. Mm. So I had this weird anxiety about being always early to everything. Gotcha. Uh, you know, so there are all these weird things where I remember once uh, when I was whatever, seven or eight, and sometimes religious people show up at the door, even out yes. in Boonie land. Okay. Mm -hmm. And somehow they got into the house and they basically, and I still remember this, they said things to my mother like, oh, they've got to go to church. Otherwise, you know, they'll burn in hell or whatever it was. And my mother started crying and I had never seen weakness in my mother. Yes. And I, I learned about her religious stuff. But when that happened, that also really gave me a very bad look at religion at a very young age that they were that abusive. Okay. So I've had a thing about 
uh, power and abuse. You know, not only hearing all the German stories yes. about the Nazis and, and people following orders just because they're told to follow orders. So I was uh, sort of set up um, not to follow orders <laughs> that I did not agree in, yes. you know, which is different than you want things orderly. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. but at least power was different. Yeah, not just being a straight, a straight up rebel. Yes, no, no. But I had that weird both sides going on. Yes. Yeah, like I like I understand that with the crying as as weakness cuz you know being being men like you know, we're, we're kind of taught that whether it's through from our parents or even through society like come on, come on, you're a man. You know men men aren't supposed to cry. Men aren't supposed to cry and you know now that I'm getting into my late 40s now and I teach about being vulnerable. Like it's, it's okay to be vulnerable, you know, and that, that's a big reason why I started this, this podcast to get into people's backstories to, to just own what, own what happened, own what you went through. Like, like it's okay. Cause there's someone else that's really, really stuck into their own box or their own bubble and they don't know how to get out of it. And then on, on the, I mean, anyone can benefit from it, but if there's a, another man out there listening that has something that they're facing and they don't know how to get through it, seeing someone else share will help them share. And for example, I had a I had a, a man on my show. He's a single parent, and the mom really isn't in the picture. And he's like, "That's usually not the case. It's usually the other way around, where the mom has the kids and the dad's not in the picture." And so as I'm asking him questions, like I got him to open up about that. And he says, you know, and this is just so hard because there's no one to talk to. I said, see, but from you sharing that, I will now tell you I'm in the same boat. <laughs> I said, I have custody of my kids and their mom is 800 miles away. <laughs> you know, so, so, like, so like that's the power of being vulnerable. So he shared that story. He got teary eyed, but then he found an ally, you know, so there's actual strength in that moment of weakness. Yeah, and I think you actually have to be strong to be able to show weakness yes. or invulnerability. And I will say like working in a male prison where weakness is, uh, it's a really interesting thing because they do not want in any way to be weak or vulnerable with each other because there are a lot of predators and, and there's a, like a system where you don't want that to happen because then you get taken advantage of. But when they would see me and uh, I'm not a threat to them and I'm there to listen and care, I never saw so many guys cry in my exam room where no one else was around mm. ever, ever, ever in my life. Uh, because they were hurting on so many levels. I mean, because it's not only their freedom, it's their loss from their family, their children, their careers, their dreams. I mean, it, it's, I mean, if you don't address that, then that chews you up um, and affects you. And uh, yeah, the PTSD that I saw, uh, in the men in the prison was really quite extraordinary. I bet. I bet. And we'll definitely get there. So what was your childhood dream job? 
My childhood dream job? Yeah. It, and this is going to sound weird uh, <laughs> in that because, you know, here I am reading all these books and, and I loved books. And some people will ask me, well, why did you want to become a doctor? And and my story, I think, is like 100% different than anybody else's because, one, I didn't have any doctors in my family. I didn't even have anyone in my family who graduated high school. Mm-hmm. And um, and I and I had never – we didn't have TVs, you know, so I didn't know what, like, doctors were supposed to be like. And we didn't go to doctors because you just heal or die, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, but – but here I'm reading books and there was a series written by Frank G. Slaughter. And this guy, uh, I found out later, he was a surgeon and he wrote probably 50 or 60 books. And they were fictional stories about doctors throughout history. So you'd have to imagine there would be the buccaneer surgeon, the surgeon in the Roman legion, the surgeon during the crusades, whatever. I mean, all over the place. And I read those stories and he intertwined uh, the science of the time, uh, individuals, mind you, they're all male. It didn't occur to me like, oh, I'm a female. <laughs> they're all male. But, uh, but they stood up against abuses of power, they helped people, but they also had romance and danger and excitement and saw the world. You see what I mean? Yes. And that became my dream, like this ide- idealized view of what a doctor was. And it just never occurred to me in those days that that these stories were all about males, not females. You know, I didn't read nurse stories. You see what I mean? True, yeah. And in fact, in... Uh, and I'll never forget this, which is another reason I, I was very introverted as a kid. In seventh grade, you know, that was our school system. That's where you was go to the high school building, right? And then they test you and the guidance counselor. And I tested high just because I liked to study. And the guidance counselor asked me, well, well, yeah, you're doing well, blah, da, da, da. What do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a doctor. And this guy looked at me like, and said, wouldn't you rather be a nurse? Okay. Mm. You see what I mean? And so. A little bit sexist, just a little yeah, bit. Well, well, you know, I think I didn't know the word sexist in those days. I just yeah. thought, okay, that's the last time I'm ever going to talk to a mentor or a mm. guidance counselor. You know, I made these like unfortunate black and white decisions in my brain. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that really limited me because I never reached out for help. I was always trying to do everything on my own, which made things infinitely harder for me. See, and I want to expand on that a little, because for the people listening, if you watch this show on the regular, you know that theme comes up so often where people have it, a, a goal and then somebody else tries to stuff them in a box and be like, oh, you know, you should do something else or you don't have the personality for that or you need this amount of education for that. It's like, that's not for, for anyone else to decide. You know, you, this, this is your life. This is your future, your career choice. You know, this is where your passion has taken you. And it's up to you to make that decision. Like people know when I started my gym, my, my now ex, she really wasn't on board in the beginning because I was managing re- restaurants. I had a steady paycheck, you know, I could afford the house, you know, the cars and the kids. And 
it's just what it was. So going into business, it's a little, it's a little murkier, <laughs> you know, right. you know, it's like, you don't have a college degree. You don't have a business background. You don't know marketing, but I was like, but you know what, but I'm managing restaurants. Like I actually learned a lot more in those. I mean, I was actually managing for about 16 of those 20 years. So it's like, I learned a lot and I just had to learn what I didn't know. So let me just apply what I have and let's get the ball rolling because I knew I was great with connecting people and making people feel good about themselves and helping them achieve results, helping them build confidence and resilience. So it's like that's the biggest core is focus on the people and then everything else just kind of fell in line the way it should have, you know, so like what that person, that mentor should have said to you, how can I help you become that doctor? Like we need those mentors and those teachers and coaches in our lives. Those people that will show us how or lead us to someone who can show us how. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Rob. And I'd like to add one thing because, you know, when I look back at it and you're absolutely right, you want to pick the people who uh, support you in your dream, uh, but also give you good advice the, the thing that I missed, and I think people have to realize, is that you don't want to generalize one bad experience to others. Because what I did was when that, men, well, when that guidance counselor said that to me, I just made a seventh grade. I mean, what was I, like 12 or 13? I made yeah. a 12-year-old decision <laughs> that I – that it makes, I decided, well, I'm not going to reach out to help for any mentor or guidance person. You see what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, at that time, I just, I, you know, at 12, I didn't really understand that, okay, that was a stupid decision because there could be good mentors and guidance people. Yes. But I just decided, all right, I'm on my own. And and that's a mistake, I think, that a lot of people, what, one bad thing happens and they their brain, especially if they're young, it, they generalize it because they don't know. Yeah, especially now, too, because the kids nowadays aren't raised the way we were. You know, like we were raised with standards. We were raised with you had to earn your spot. You had to earn your keep. And now everybody just gets handed stuff. And then when they get out into the real world and they face struggle, they're like, they don't, they don't know how to deal with it. And again, I can't say everyone, but I've seen enough to where I'm comfortable saying that there are just a lot of younger people. They just don't know how to cope with the stresses of life because everything has been made easy. And, you know, for, for the parent, I mean, the parents are my age and up the parents of these kids, but we didn't have these when we were growing right. up. Well, we could just say, look, just go sit in the corner and while I while I do work or clean the clean the or whatever. You know, like I remember with my, with my mom when she had to do the dishes, we were right there with her. <laughs> you know, when she was sweeping the floor, I was holding the dustpan. So, so right. it's like it's like we were involved in the chore. You know, it wasn't just here, just go sit in the corner on, on your iPad for three hours. You know, and and again, not saying all oh, parents, but stuff like that. It, it's it's making just the population less resilient, you know? And so then things, things arise and they can't handle it. 
And they're like, oh, I guess that's just not meant to be. It's like, no, you got to keep, you got to go layers, layers through this. So it's like, here's your goal. Here's, here's, I'm sorry. Yeah, here's your goal. Here's the finished result. But you got to sift through layers of nonsense to get there. And that's a, a lost art. Yeah, the other thing that I see, you know, as a doctor from a psychological standpoint, because I mentor kids as well, is that they have a hard time amusing themselves if they don't have an electronic device yes. next to them. Yes. And, and that, you know, you worry about if there's ever any, uh, let's say, electrical problem that wipes out <laughs> your yes. ability to access things electronically, they're going to disassemble their brains because they won't know what to do with themselves. Yes. I just want to share some, something quickly on that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So my, my, I, I, with my three younger kids, I had 50, 50 custody of them with my ex. And so my daughter had a tournament up in New York. And so the twins were with me as we were driving up. And so we get to where the tournament was. Now this is in January. So it's cold. It was, in, it was in an indoor an indoor facility. And the twins said, you know, can we bring in our iPods? And I said, no, keep them in the car. And so maybe half an hour or so goes by, their mom gets there. And so they come to me and they're like, dad, can we have the keys? I'm like, for what? Like, oh, mom said we could use our iPods. Like, I told you no. And I went back to her and I was like, I already told them they're not bringing them in. And one of the other moms was like, well, what are they supposed to do? (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's not even so much the kids, it's the parents. And so like while the games were going on, I was doing various activities with the kids. And then before you know it, I had like 15 to 20 kids over in my area. We were playing games with the balloons. We were playing playing with the football. We were playing freeze tag. You know, and all these other kids with phones put the phones down and came over to us. You know, so like if you give them the opportunity to just do what they're instinctively programmed to do, they'll do it. But us parents, we're stuffing them into that box. Yeah, and that's the lazy box because it's so easy for parents to like, here, do that, and then I want to do my thing. Yes. Where, And, of course, the way I grew up, whew, my parents, <laughs> it was like uh, you wake up early, you ski. If it's the summer, you wake up early, you hike or you yes. or you take care of the gardens or you mow the lawn or it's like, I mean, there was there was always togetherness as well. Yeah. Um, you know, camping all the time. Right? I mean, everything. <laughs> all right. So you make it through through school. So you're the first one to graduate high school. Yes. So you get into college. Yeah. Get, get your degree. What was your first job after college? Well, uh, well, well, first, I want to back up a little bit because um, my first job uh, was in high school because I had to generate money because remember, my family doesn't have money. Mm. And so I had to generate money. And I got lucky where uh, up in Catskills, they have the resorts too. you know, uh, especially this is way back in the 60s and 70s, where I was a waitress in the Catskill Resorts, Pickwick Lodge. And um, and boy, I worked six days a week from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. But uh, because of tips and this and that, I was bringing home more money than my father made in IBM every week. Okay. okay. 
Mind you, he wasn't paid a lot in IBM. (laughs) But uh, so I saved all that money uh, to go to college. And then I got a, uh, a scholarship. In fact, I, when I did college applications, I ended up going to the college that gave me the largest scholarship and enough of my money so I could, uh, I never borrowed one cent from my parents after the age of 18. Wow. Not one. And I spent many times also starving, you know, later I told my mother and she goes, why didn't you tell us? Because <laughs> you told us not to be weak. I know, I know. It's like, you know, you're giving me mixed messages, mom. But, but uh, so the scholarship put me in uh, Clark University in Massachusetts, in Worcester. 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 <laughs> and uh, and I uh, entered their sort of pre-med program and also sort of the only female in those days in the pre-med program. And also because in high school I had been an athlete. And of course, this is Title IX days, you know, back in 69, where they first allowed girls to play sports between schools, right? Interscholastic yeah. sports in, in high school. Yeah. And my sister and I were both tall blondes and we were always athletic. Uh, so we played uh, volleyball and basketball, basically. Nice. And then I go to college and I want to still play a sport. And I realize, oh man, this college only had two sports for women. Tennis, which I had never really played because we didn't have have tennis course. (laughs) And crew, you know, rolling. Yeah, rolling. All right. So they look at me and think, hey, come out for the crew team. (laughs) But my love was volleyball and they had a male team and I tried out for the male team and got on the male team because in oh, those nice. days, you know, because of title nine, I was able to play in a male volleyball team in college. And then I also rowed, you know, yeah. for two years. And then I thought, I don't even like rowing. Why did I ever get talking to rowing? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't like all these calluses on my poor little hands either, you know, <laughs> but that probably made you a stronger hitter, though. Well, that that is, I, I had I had some powerful, uh, you know. Now I'm like 64, but in uh, in those days, I, I was very strong. Nice from rowing. Yeah, yeah rowing rowing takes a lot of power. I just went kayaking about a month ago. First time I went without the kids. So, so, so I didn't have to go at, at a snail's pace. So I was able to actually get after it. And yeah. I, was, I was hurting pretty well for a couple of days there. Yeah. But I play volleyball too. I, I play on a, on a league in, in a league on Sundays. Now, love that sport. Basketball too, but my, my knees don't like basketball as much anymore. But yeah, I digress. All right. <laughs> so so talk, talk me through getting a job at the prison. Okay, so what the... the you know, people wonder, like, why in the world did you go to prison? Well, that wasn't really my decision at all. That's not how I envisioned my life. But uh, to get into medical school uh, also requires you got to pay for medical school, and that is ungodly expensive. And I and I applied to um, something called the National Health Service Corps Scholarship. And in those days, 
um, if you were sort of on the poor side and you did well in school and uh, they, you had to jump through a lot of hoops, but also you would sign a contract, sort of like going into the military, that, okay, the government will actually finance your education in that area, but then you owe them four years in a place no other doctor would work. Okay. And because the National Health Corps wanted to try to get doctors to work in inner cities where they couldn't get docs, you know, that were violent, uh, or in really rural boonie land areas. <laughs> and so to me, I thought, okay, yeah, you know, I'm used to boonie land and, you know, I could be in an inner city. And when my time was up, uh, they said, hey, Nevada is under uh, lawsuits in their prisons because their prisons are too violent. Um, they're not giving medical care. No doctor will work there. They're under Supreme Court ruling. Um, we're going to put you in prison. I was like, oh, I don't think that was on my contract anywhere. <laughs> right? But, you know, it was like broad, like where they needed you. And, and I got put in a prison in Nevada in a male medium security prison back in 1987. And this is after all my specialty training as well in internal medicine. Okay. And I knew absolutely nothing about prisons. I mean, nothing, you know, yeah. I didn't even watch TV shows that had something to do with prisons or sort of movies that had anything. I just knew that, you know, you're taught that, okay, people do bad things and then they go to prison. That yeah. was it. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that whole thing was wild for me. And I t tell people um, I married two months before I went to prison. So I always will say I married my husband. And then two months later, I was sent to prison. <laughs> it's eight or 30 years. But, but it was a wild time for me because in Nevada, in this area, Carson City, they, Carson City is the capital of Nevada. Nevada is a huge state, very little population. But outside the capital, you actually had three prisons. And one of the prisons, uh, Nevada State Prison, had been built in 1862 before Nevada was a state. It was a territorial okay. prison, right? Yeah. And the prison I was placed at was built in 1964 because they just, you know, had more people. Yeah. And it was a medium security prison that also ultimately had the only medical place that could take care of anyone in the state, which is what I ran as well, and a minimum security camp. And when I was put there, and here I am married to my husband, and my husband, uh, um, he passed away two years ago and was my soulmate, uh, but he was the first black person that probably entered Carson city. <laughs> wow. and, and so here I am a tall blonde. Uh, <laughs> my husband's also was an athlete, you know, full contact karate champion, that sort of stuff. Oh, nice. And uh, so here's, he's this six, two black guy muscled. I'm there and Carson City wasn't ready for that, if you know what I mean. Okay. In fact, I think in our second week in the city, my husband was stopped and asked for his parole papers, you know, that sort of stuff. Ah, uh, okay. Right. And, but when I entered the prison, uh, 
I realized that one out of four of my patients are black. And I'm thinking, where did they all come from, right? I mean, there's no blacks in this area at all, except for my husband. And then I found out they sort of shipped them up from Las Vegas because they hadn't built enough prisons down there in Vegas yet. So they had shipped them up north. But I also realized that we had like, you know, 9% population in our state, but you would see, you know, 28%, 30% in our prisons. So it was always, you know, more than three or four fold that you would expect per population basis. Okay. And and that and that really struck me because you know I was sort of clueless about how racist you know certain areas are. I mean, I grew up in a place where I wasn't really exposed to that. Yeah. In my high school, I still remember my high school class was about four hundred. We had two black girls and one black girl. Trudy Wright was my physics partner. <laughs> You know, my exposure. Yeah. Then I go to college and uh, at all the university settings, there were very bright uh, individuals from all different races. So I, I just didn't experience racism uh, until I went to Nevada. Wow. Yeah, right. it's so like I was a newbie. <laughs> it's like people find it hard to believe when I say that. I mean, I've experienced it, but very little. Because I think a lot of it too, it depends where where you're from, right? Where you grow um, up. Yeah, it's like yeah. where you grow up, and it's like I was born in New York City, but I was raised here in Rhode Island. Like my parents, my parents had an apartment in Brooklyn, and it caught fire, so they, they ended up having to go in, into the projects in Queens. And I, I actually just finally got that that full story from my mother just this past weekend because I heard bits and pieces, but I wanted the rest of it. But she said they moved into the projects and it was more so my dad, like there was an 11 year gap in between my parents. So she was still really young when she had us. And so dad was like, this isn't happening. And so he ended up coming up here because uh, he was an engineer. He's a welder. And so, so there was a job opening up here at, at Quantum Point, electric boat to build in submarines. So he actually came up here for six months. And then my mom said that he would fly her up here, you know, like every other weekend or something, and they would go house hunting. And then they ended up finding a house, rural area, you know, good school system, you know, like next to no crime. I think there's, there's like four, four police officers that, that patrol where I grew up. And it just wasn't a thing. You know, I have pockets of people saying ignorant things, but it was nothing that was like majorly widespread. To, so when when I I bring some people on like and we swap stories, some people look, look at me like I'm, you know, <laughs> it's like uh, really I'm like yeah really like I walk into stores and I don't worry about people looking at me like I don't and if they are I don't even notice, <laughs> you know because that's yeah, just yeah, not that's, something I look for. <laughs> yeah, and and you know being married to a black man was uh, what should I say an educational experience. Yeah because I realized how different my husband was. But the reason he was so different is he grew up in Hyde Park with highly educated parents. His mother was an international pianist who played at Carnegie Hall. You see what I mean? Yes. His father was basically like a real estate tycoon. And, 
you know, my husband was born in 44 and he would talk about like this would be normal for him. He'd go, well, you know, my mother, my mother had soirees at our place in Hyde Park where we had servants and I met Jackie Robinson and Milton Friedman. And, you know, he would talk about all these people like out of history in my mind, like <laughs> you knew all these people. Oh, yeah. Elijah Muhammad was down the street over there. And I'm like, I didn't know all these people. And but so he grew up highly elite and then his family's business collapsed because of a whatever when he was 18. And he went from maybe going to the Sorbonne in Paris to having to go to a University of Illinois, you know, because everything imploded. And then his family fractured. And then he had to be a red cap. So he went from here to there. And, uh, and then he got in Vietnam and shot up and uh, almost died because he lost a lung and had heart damage wow. and spent a year or two in an ICU. And they told him, you're going to die. And his first wife couldn't handle that and dumped him. And wow. then he decided, I'm not going to listen to anybody. I'm just going to live and push my life and became a full contact karate champion. You see what I mean? Amazing. I love right. those stories. Love it. Right. And then he outlived the doctor's predictions by 50 odd years. So he died at 75 from a heart attack. And we were working out in the morning because he, in his 60s, decided to get into like bodybuilding and posing and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. And uh, really one he had so many trophies and when he died, then I'm like, what am I going to do with all these dumb trophies? Right. So, <laughs> so. Wow. That's amazing. All right. So when did you realize that this was bigger than just a job? Well, uh, the big thing for me was, you know, I had to do four years and uh, boy, I, I lived through adverse times. And in my second year uh, I was taken hostage and um, I, by one of the inmates who had been a Vietnam vet, and to this day, I still have inkling that there were some bad apples in the prison who wouldn't mind if I had got myself killed. Okay. And uh, so I was... 10 hours, assaulted, raped. They got me out with SWAT teams, concussion grenades, blew away the inmate a few feet from me. Wow. Happened October, Friday the 13th. Oof. Yeah, sort of weird. And he wanted this inmate, his name was Kenneth Meller. He had killed a cop. So he had originally been on death row then because in the 70s, the Supreme Court said it's not constitutional. He came off death row. So he was what's called a life without, life with no possibility of parole. He had done up, when I saw him, it was, uh, he was going to turn his 14th year in prison. Now here's what's really weird, Rob. He wanted to be killed at the stroke of midnight. You know, when he took me hostage, it was to get himself killed as well. Besides like punishing me because he had developed almost of a bit of a weird fatal attraction to me, like mm -hmm. someone that he would never experience in his life. So then he's going to take it out on me sort of deal. 
But he wanted to be killed at the stroke of midnight on the 14th year anniversary of killing the cop. You know, this was in the papers as well. Uh, He had structured it. So that was the 14th time he had seen me. There are 14 letters in my full name. Now, I only mention that because this guy had an IQ probably over 170, you know, because they used to test him back in the early days. And he, I think, before he took me hostage, a week or two before he took me hostage, he had given me a book called Moth, which is his name on the prison yard. But it reeked so much of tobacco because they used to smoke like fiends in those. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even like read it because it sounded so bad. And then, and then I got taken hostage and I couldn't look at it. And years later, I took a look at it and I realized it was written in 1976. And it was basically sort of telling about him falling in love with like a female healthcare provider and getting himself killed. You know, I basically lived into a fantasy as well. Wow. Yeah. A lot of weird things with that, but uh, so he was dead. Uh, I went back to work on Monday, which people, you know, I think were shocked that I went back to work on Monday and some people were like, oh, didn't you get medical help? Uh, didn't you have stress leave or didn't you sue? None of those things ever occurred to me. It was like, how can you fall out of the tree like a kid? I go back to work, right? And don't say anything. Yeah. And um, and it was, it, it, I was in shock and the prison really said nothing to me. Uh, and staff really didn't say nothing to me. And when you're first in shock, you think, oh, good, because it's like too much. But then you start wondering, do they care at all or do they want to actually see me dead? You know, that's not a good place to be as a victim either or someone who's been victimized. Yes. And it was the um, compassion from the inmate population that actually helped me heal. They were the ones who actually sent me get well cards, which is against prison rules, by the way, but they did it anyway. Uh, And when they saw me, like as a patient, they were like, are you okay, Dr. Gidney? You need anything? You know, we do not condone what he did. There were inmates who wrote articles and sent them to the newspaper, basically saying uh, that, hey, I'm a, this is typical, like one of the guys wrote, I'm a lifer and we feel bad for Moth, but he should have never done this to Dr. Gedney. Uh, And if he, he was a coward. If he wanted to take his life, he should have just done it, but not hurt her in the process. You see what I mean? It was all this sort of stuff going on. And, uh, and then fortunately, my husband, um, he knew how to deal with me, which was like to let me deal with my own stuff and um, just be ready to it took me probably two or three weeks before I even told him I was raped. You know what I mean? That sort of stuff. But he had lived through Vietnam. He had seen 
American soldiers rape and harm, you know, the Vietnamese, right? I mean, he knew that when guys have nothing else to lose or have anger issues and everything else, they, they do bad things, right? Yeah. So he, he knew. He just let me have time to tell it. Yeah. Wow. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> well, Boy. yeah, you know, it, it, and it's like most people, uh, any, everyone I think in life has weird, different traumatic events. Like that was a traumatic event for me. Yeah. And then you have to decide, well, what do you do with it? Like first, a lot of times you're in shock. You're not exactly sure. And then because of your wiring and your upbringing, how you yes. react. Yep. And then later you look back and you create your own story around it that works, that works for you. But it, and one of the things that really helped me is, you know, because I was a doctor and I was used to understanding trauma. And I also knew that the best thing about trauma is to, uh, you might be victimized, but you don't have to turn yourself into a victim. And I was really aware of uh, and how not to turn myself into a victim. And one was absolutely to forgive uh, the inmate who did that, to also forgive, even though I might be suspicious and paranoid of custody for killing me off possibly, but to forgive people who didn't handle it correctly, because I would have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they didn't know what to say. Maybe they were told by administration, don't talk to the doctor about this. Who, who knows? You know what I mean? See, how, how, did, how did you deal with, with that part, though? Because I talk about that on this show a lot, when people have experienced traumatic things, that forgiveness starts within. It's like so many people look for it externally, but like you have to, you have to heal yourself first before you can even receive it from someone else. So right. how, how are you able to come to that? Yeah, well, yeah, there was a, there was a, there were some wake up calls for me. So imagine, you know, I'm still a gym rat, even though you know this happened to me. I'm still a gym rat. <laughs> and this is this is not only local news. This was national news. The only thing that took it off the national news was. This happened October 13, 1989. A few days later, the huge earthquake in California happened. I remember that. Right? So that's what took it off the news. And uh, so here it is in the local news all over the place. And I'm in the gym. And, you know, there are some people who don't know what to say to me. And they don't want to like, well, you know, what do I do? And, and I remember this one woman. And I didn't even really know her, really. You know, so I'm on the elliptical or something near her and she looks at me. She goes, oh, yeah, I heard about you. I'm so glad nothing happened to you. OK. No. All right. OK. Now, see, in the paper, because I didn't tell anything. Right. Oh, OK. You see, all what they hear is that I was held hostage and then I went back to work. That's the only thing that that really happened, because I in the prison, um, they try to debrief you afterwards, but I was in so much shock and I had, all what I wanted to do was go. Yeah. So I just didn't say hardly anything and, and they didn't know what to do. So they're like, Oh, okay. And so I just left. 
<laughs> so the papers don't know. And in newspaper, people tried to access me like they want my story. And you and I read I've listened to your podcast where you point out that wow, the news is so much about hate and you know, all the life if, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, sort of world. Yeah. Right. And and I don't want to do that. I, and I don't want you know, that sort of ugliness to go in papers. So um, I didn't talk to the papers at all. But anyway, so this woman goes, oh, I'm glad nothing happened to you. Okay, and Rob, out of my mouth comes, no, nothing happened except I was assaulted and raped and concussion grenaded and saw a guy shot in front of me. And she looked at me, she goes, you need help. And of course, it was like someone slapping, like, all right, Karen, get yeah. with the program here, right? <laughs> because, you know, to do that to someone is like, you know, all right, that's not appropriate uh, to answer that way. And uh, the other thing was, and then there was another slap in the face I got. I needed more than one, I think, to like get me off my, you know, little problem. And that was uh, the first week I was back, I get this phone call. And uh, usually phone calls don't go directly into my office. They sort of go through the switchboard, you know, and then to my office in the prison because of security and weird stuff. So I get this call and uh, they go, is this Dr. Gedney? And I go, yes. And then this older lady's voice is on the line. And basically, this is the mother of the guy who took me hostage. So first of all, all right, the... I don't know what's up with the prison system and their security, but usually that would never, ever happen, right? Yeah. For me to be blindsided like that. Mm-hmm. And so this old lady, because he was probably in his 50s, so she's probably at least late 70s or so. This old lady is like, oh, I heard what Kenny did. I'm so sorry. I'm so glad nothing happened to you. Okay. All right. And, wow. and I don't exact, and, and I, and I did say something on the order. Well, things did happen to me and I was, you know, I don't know exactly what I said, but, yeah. but whatever it came out of my mouth, she started bawling and crying. Mm. And I thought, Oh my God, Karen, this poor lady just lost her son. And she's an old lady, and you're supposed to heal people and help people, not make them feel more miserable. You see what I mean? Exactly. I was, right, I was so. actually having a talk with my daughter about that just just this morning, about like if you know something about someone else's situation, you know, like should you say something? Yeah, that's and a tough I, one. And I said, well, you have to sit back and you have to ask yourself because yeah. you know knowledge is power. So you have to ask yourself, what is this knowledge going to do to that person? You know, so like some sometimes you might know something, but it's not your place to really share it. If it's going to put that person into a dark place, you know, like that's just my own personal take on it. Because there are things that I know about about some people, but it's like, you know, it's not it's not my my place to blow that up. You know, so like if it's something that can help someone then yes, by all means, I, I will help. But if it can potentially harm them, you know, depending on what, what it is, I, I think twice about it. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's 
I, I think as a culture, we don't exactly know how to deal with someone else's trauma, you know, exactly. uh, and to, uh, to make believe uh, it didn't happen. Uh, it has to do with who are we talking about? Because see the prison, uh, they're supposed to be security oriented and protect me. And so to me, uh, one, they should have um, had some sort of interaction with me. So this wouldn't happen to others, you know, like a teaching moment. Yes. You see what I mean? Right. Yes. Uh, and, and them not saying anything was, was not good for me. And I actually ended up teaching in the prison about that, but it took a while and it only happened where in those days, this is back in the eighties, uh, I would do in-service training for new officers on HIV in prisons because they were like, eh, everybody was like scared out of their mind in the early days, officers were like, oh, what if they bleed on me? Because we had a lot of HIV people positive in the prisons. Yes. And, and so imagine I'm talking about HIV and at the end, like, are there any questions? And this one new female officer raises her hand and she goes, you know, Dr. Gedney, we've heard that you were actually taken hostage. Could you tell us about that event? That was the first time anyone in the prison asked Wow. And I dumped on that poor class. <laughs> they, were, they, they were probably never the same. And, uh, and, and some of them started crying and stuff. And, and then afterwards, the uh, training officer, and I was lucky, the training officer, CJ, uh, had been a Vietnam vet. All right. And he had the wherewithal to say, hey, Gedney, um, you know, you need to tell that story and the officers need to hear it. And he goes, I want you now in the future, after you do the HIV talk, to give him some insight about the hostage thing. He said, because, you know, he basically said, as a war veteran, I know that, um, things like this have to be talked about and not ignored. And also that the prison needs to deal with their staff in a different way. Yeah. It's kind of like how people don't get a house alarm until that, until they get robbed. You know, right. like it's one, one of those scenarios. So, but he was absolutely right. And like it says up above us, your true power lies in your story. Cause like I try to preach on this show and just in life in general, that every single mess leaves behind a message. Like no matter how bad or how traumatic it may seem, there is something that can be taken from it to ensure that it doesn't happen again. You know, so as somebody else coming in to that position, they should they should be able to come in and be confident that they're, they're going to be safe and not have something like this happen again. So, you know, hats off to you for being courageous enough to share it, you know, so you can help other people. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I think that, uh, and I don't know, I, I think for a lot of people's trauma, I think some of the people who do the best is then become uh, sort of advocates in a certain way. You know, like if they're a cancer survivor, they talk about 
how they survived and help other survivors and things like that versus people who just absolutely bury it and, uh, and, and try to ignore it. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think, you know, life is one of those things where people keep doing mistakes. And, and I think it's the smartest people learn from the mistakes of others. So, so we have to broadcast our mistakes. <laughs> so they don't do that. You're right. You're right, though. Like, again, I was explaining to my daughter, like, I always have deep talks with, with my kids. But I, I always tell them that you think bad things are going to happen. So, but that's how you gain experience. You know, so like, like you're going to have uphill battles. You're going to have mountains to climb. You're going to have things that that go wrong. You, know, you might have a car accident one day, you, you know, like just all things happen. But it's how you react to what happens. That is how you inspire others. And that's how you heal yourself. And that's how you're able to forgive. You know, because, again, as I said earlier, forgiveness isn't about the other person. The forgiveness is about you. Now, you just accepting what happened, pick up the pieces, move forward. And that doesn't mean that you forget because so many people confuse that. They're like, oh, well, I'll never forget. Like nobody told you to, to forget, but you still have to move forward. And, and so like take what happened and find what good can come from it. So whether it's you speaking to other people who have been in a similar situation and helping them to forgive now that's a positive that came from that because now you're giving back in a positive light saying that's a part that people miss when it comes to forgiveness and moving forward that once you remove you from the equation because we get stuck into this bubble that this happened to me i lost this i lost that and those things may have been true but what are you gonna do you know, so those things happen. But now what are you going to do? You have a moment now to where you can step in front of others who maybe aren't in a place of forgiveness and help them get there. And that's power. Yeah. And, you know, I have to think back where you said, you know, how did you go from the prison to really turning it into your calling? And, you know, most people would not think a hostage event would be like the good point to turn it into a wallet. It'd be like, eh, maybe you should go elsewhere. But for me, that was like a pivot point where in my brain, I realized, wow, if I'm treated like this by the prison, you know, someone who's a doctor, who's this and that, and then I could have this happen to me and then on top of it, it could have been sort of set up by the power structure uh, and that the only people who seem to care about me seem to be the inmate population. It just changed the whole way I felt about my one responsibility to the inmates and also the way I saw them through my lens, right? Mm. And then also the issue of I had seen enough abuse of power in the prison uh, and it's not like rampant, but all what you need, and you've talked about this with the police is all what you need is a couple of bad apples. I mean, there can be many good apples, but if you have a couple bad and no one holds them accountable, that is a problem in closed systems like a prison, which is beyond really public scrutiny. And 
and so that that thing I have in the, me about protecting against abuse of power really got fired up after the, the hostage thing. And uh, then I really turned to more teaching. I mean, it's one thing to take care of medical problems that gives you, I don't know, a, a certain uh, feedback, but it, but it's far better for me to uh, prevent problems. You know, in medicine, I can take care of a heart attack, sure, but I'd rather do everything possible to prevent it. And, and for me, that's like eat right, exercise right, sleep right, don't get stressed out. You, you see what I mean? I mean, yeah. that's what I love. So you don't end up with these horrible problems. Yeah. And, um, and I realized that so many of my guys had real issues with life skills, just plain life skills. And that's why they many times used drugs and addictive behaviors and violence and all these things. And I developed courses as a volunteer in the evening. You've talked about, are you passionate enough to do something for free <laughs> or something like that, right? Yeah. And, and when people say, well, God, why did you stay so long? It wasn't the medicine. It was actually, I loved teaching as a volunteer in the evenings, because then I would see the light go on in people. And then when I would see a change in behavior, um, that was uh, what really I enjoyed more than anything. Love it. And, you know, medicine uh, is to me like an intellectual challenge. Uh, but I'm not the type of person who loves taking care of someone who's dying. You know what I mean? Yeah. To me, that's, I'm sorry, to me, that's depressing. And all what I think of is, oh, man, if you hadn't been a two-pack-a-day smoker all your life. In fact, I fought so hard to get cigarettes out of that prison. And, you know, they didn't care about what I said. But eventually, lawsuits really pushed prisons to go non-smoking. Yeah. Um, and then, wow, my uh, inhaler use on the yard so guys could breathe went from like 100% to like almost nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, time flies, so we, uh, we're all done. <laughs> so give but me we have a, to talk about my book, why I wrote yeah, it. Yeah, I was just going to say, say give, me, give me a fi final words, whatever, whatever you want to okay. talk about. Go ahead. So when I left the prison, the biggest thing I wanted to do was to have people um, see the system through my eyes and that you can do through stories and that can be through an author or as a speaker. And I wrote my book, 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor, which they can get on Amazon and Kindle or Audible or print or whatever. Um, my website is Discover drg.com. And I do speaking engagements on prison reform, but also on general topics where I use the prison as a background, both the prison and medicine as a background. Say your, say your um, website again. Discoverdrg.com. It's like Dr. G. That's what they used to call me. Right. Okay, there we go. That's it. Yeah, that, that's my website. They could also get the book from the website as well. 
Okay, awesome. All right, so um, so give us just like a quick a quick uh another summary. Like I know I know you just spoke yeah. about why why you wrote it, but like what's one big takeaway from the book, and then we'll break it down. The big takeaway is uh, to see the humanity behind bars and to want to in I want the public to see the inmates like uh, I saw them as individuals who had problems that can be prevented in the first place if we as a society and a group actually were interested in affecting things like systemic racism, poverty, mental illness, addiction, and look at it really through the eyes of um, well-being and health versus punishment and ostracization and things like that. And second, I really wanted them to be inspired to make a difference somewhere in their lives where they could be part of the puzzle to help the situation. And I push holistic prison reform where it's the prevention piece, preventing kids from ending up in prison. This is why I mentor kids. Prevention is big, just like in medicine, prevention is big. And then if they do end up in the uh, prison system, that we do everything in power to educate and heal and make sure that when they leave, they're less of a risk to society, not more. I mean, we've got it all backwards. And then when they leave, to truly help support them, not stamp them with a felony stamp, which makes obstacles incredibly and create laws where you can't live here, you can't do this, uh, you can't get a good job. I mean, we want to help them reintegrate into society. And and I think it'll increase (laughs) humanity across the board, but also it is highly stupid and costly the way our country deals with the criminal justice system and very unfair. And it's really unfair for the poor. It's actually unfair for what my inmates would call pumas, the poor, the undereducated or underprivileged, M standing for mentally ill or minorities, and A, the addicts. The system is really uh, unfair for that, that particular group. Agreed, agreed. I, I also say on the prevention piece, if we can stop kids from making those decisions that will land them there, you know, like I, I had a guy on a debate show, we were going back and forth about this. And, and I said, you know, obviously, yes, prison reform definitely needs to happen. I'm like, but how about we stop pumping out criminals? You know, right. I mean? it's, it's like we got to give these kids the structure and the guidance and the resources that they need regardless of home life, if we can, if we can get to them with enough power and passion and direction that we can at least keep some of them from heading down that path. You know, and I try to do that when, when I speak in schools, just trying to hammer it into the kids. Like no matter what you have going on, you can make a difference. Like you can be the one to change it around. Like if your grandfather was in jail, if your dad was in jail, if your mom's in jail, you can break the cycle. Like it's up, up to you because somebody has to break it or else it's going to keep happening. 
You know, it's interesting you say that, Rob, because yesterday I took Dante and I, my husband and I mentored him since he was three. Now he's 14 and he really took my husband's death hard. And so I'm mentoring him. But imagine yesterday I took him to his high school orientation uh, because his mother, let's just say, is not you know, uh, a very good mother. And she mostly wanted me to take him to the orientation. So I would pay all the fees, right? You know? <laughs> but, but I took him to the orientation. And then afterwards, uh, we went to uh, the Mac, what's called the Mac Center, where I played basketball with him. Okay. But he said to me, he goes, uh, Karen, um, you know, I want to be the first person in my family to graduate high school, right? Nice. And I'm like, well, that is exactly what I want too. And this is why, you know, I take my time to mentor you and give you opportunities and things like that. And, oh, I wanted to share this. A couple of weeks ago in my area, uh, the Boys and Girls Club up in Reno had what was called the Martin Twin Basketball Camp, like Cody and Caleb Martin, you know, those identical twins. So they took their time and brought their own little coaches and friends and had a basketball camp for kids for two days. And I was able to get Dante in it. But those guys are the nicest guys, but great, great role models, incredible with the kids. And... And that's what we need more of, you know, because that that interaction Dante had with those two young guys. And I pointed out to him the reason those guys are also like that was because they had an incredible parent who held them, their mother, you know, held them to the straight and narrow and peers and things like that. That's what it is. That's how it's all going to change. Yeah, but uh, like I said, so that is our time, unfortunately, because I feel like we could talk another hour about about this. <laughs> but thank you very much for taking the time and sharing your story and getting deep. You know, you got you got uh, you persevered through a lot. So again, hat hats off to you. That's amazing. Well, I enjoyed talking with you, and hope your listeners uh, get inspired to turn triumphs or traumas into triumphs, not the other way around. (laughs) Yes, I like that. Traumas into triumphs, see? I like that. I'm stealing that one from you. (laughs) Writing it down. All right. You have yourself a great day, and I'll I'll be in touch. Maybe I'll bring bring you on in a few few months, catch up with you, see how things are going for you. Yeah, that would be great. All right, awesome. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye, Rob. Bye. All right. So that was Dr. Karen dropping some knowledge about her time working in a prison system. So if you're joining the show late, make sure you go back, watch the rest, check out her book at DiscoverDrG, DiscoverDrG.com. And I'll be back again on Friday with episode number 123. So thank you very much and have a great day. Mm